0: And we'll hear argument in case 081529, Lee versus Castaneda. Ms.
1: Goldenberg.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Section 233A, Congress extended an absolute immunity to officers and employees of the Public Health Service. That provision, reflecting Congress's policy judgment that the immunity was necessary to revitalize the Public Health Service, makes a claim against the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act, the exclusive remedy for injury or death resulting from the performance of medical or related functions, and precludes any other civil action or proceeding against the individuals by reason of the same subject matter. Without grappling with the language of Section 233A, respondents have tried in a number of different ways to imply a limitation into the text for constitutional claims. But none of those arguments creates any ambiguity in the statute for three reasons. First, the Bivens' exception, found in the Westphalat itself, applies only to the immunity set forth in the Westfall Act and says nothing about the scope of the entirely separate and distinct immunity set forth in Section 233.
3: What are the immunities set forth in the Westfall Act? I thought that they were — they applied to all Federal employees.
2: Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. Including the
3: public uh, health service.
2: Yes, that's correct. Public health service employees can take advantage both of the immunity set forth in the Westfall Act and also of the separate, pre existing, more specific immunity that's um, afforded to them by Section 233A. Uh, and this court's decision in Smith, I think, made clear that those two immunities can coexist. There's no conflict between them. Uh, and what this court said in Smith is that the Westfall Act immunity adds to the prior immunity. Uh, and uh, employees can take advantage of, of both of them.
4: Um. Our job is to determine Congress's intent when it passed 233A. What we do know is that there was no Bevin's immunity at the time. The FTCA had only a limited application to certain uh, uh, driver-related accidents. So we really don't have anything to tell us, because they didn't even know that there was a constitutional claim that could be raised, what they would have intended or not intended. And I thought that Justice Ginsburg's point would be that the Westfall Act tells us what they intended, because by its nature it applied to all employees and didn't differentiate among them and copied 233's uh, immunity so that one can look at it and say, ah, that speaks of Congress's intent.
2: Well, certainly it's true that when Congress enacted the Westfall Act, it could have broadly said, for instance, notwithstanding any other provision of law, no Federal employee shall assert a statutory immunity to constitutional claims. But it didn't do that. It did something much more narrow than that, which is that what it said was in Section 2679B2, Paragraph 1, the immunity for Federal employees that was just set forth, uh, shall not apply to constitutional claims. Is there so any, any other
4: act by, besides 233A that's similar, that gives yes. a separate immunity? Which are those?
2: Uh, there are a number of them, Your Honor. Most of them apply to uh, federal medical workers, although not all of them. Uh, there's 10 U.S.C. Section 1089, the Gonzales Act, uh, which is discussed uh, in our brief and in the government's mm-hmm. brief. Uh, which applies to Army doctors. Uh, there are statutes applying to NASA doctors, to Veterans Administration doctors, to certain medical volunteers. So there are a number of these statutes passed over a period of several decades. Um, but but it, a- it seems to
5: me that, quite apart from the Westfall Act, there's a more more basic answer that you would make to Justice Sotomayor's question, and that is because the nature of immunity clauses uh, are to make the employees secure uh, against unforeseen causes of action as well as foreseen, I think that's a principled answer you could make. If I made that answer, what, do you have authority I can cite for that proposition?
2: Um, well, I think that this court uh, has said, you know, broadly speaking, that in talking about judicially created immunities, uh, that uh, immunity is, is for hard cases uh, as well as easy cases. Uh, and the Van Camp decision that uh, this Court recently issued with respect to judicial immunity, I think, says Thank something you. along those, those lines. Uh, but I think it's true, certainly, that um, it's true that Congress, when it passed Section 233, didn't know for sure that there was going to be a Bivens cause of action that was going to be allowed. But it spoke very broadly. It said any other civil action or proceeding. And when it did that, it surely meant – civil actions or proceedings that were created by the courts at some later point in time, as well as those that existed at the time.
5: And and Uh, if we limit it, then Congress would have to reenact a statute every time there was some new cause of action.
2: Exactly, Your Honor. And I think the uh, problem with the interpretation that makes the the, uh, interpretation of the statute depend on the timing of the Bivens decision is pointed up by two different statutory provisions and the odd results that you would have. One is that the Gonzalez Act, which I referred to earlier, 10 U.S.C. Section 1089, was enacted in 1976. It has immunity conferring language that's extremely similar to the immunity conferring language of Section 233A. In fact, we know that when Congress enacted the Gonzales Act, it looked at and thought about Section 233A. And yet, if it mattered whether Bivens had yet been decided, the Gonzales Act would bar Bivens' claims, but 233A wouldn't, even though you can't make that kind of distinction based on their text.
0: Of course, I don't look to see what Congress intended, I look to see what the statute says. I don't know that we, 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 we psychoanalyze the text of a statute on the basis of what the Congress at that time knew. The text says what it says.
2: Yes, Your Honor, I agree. And the text, here is very broad and very clear that it's any other civil action or proceeding that, that, that results from the same subject matter. And I think one thing that's important is that subject matter here uh, clearly means the same set of facts or the same set of circumstances, so that it — it's not the case that you only get immunity where your cause of action is somehow similar to the cause of action that you have under the FTCA. If you, uh, you get immunity uh, if you have any claim against the individuals that comes out of the, the same set of facts, even if it were true that there was some requirement of an FTCA remedy, which we don't believe there is. And what's absolutely clear here as well is that respondents do have an FTCA remedy against the United States. They brought an FTCA claim against the United States. The United States has admitted liability on that claim. Uh, that's found at page 328 of the joint appendix. And so the question now is, uh, what damages will the respondents recover from the United States? Uh, and and uh, in that setting, most certainly the claim against individuals is barred by Section 233A. Would and that's a, there's
3: a ceiling uh, it, because the tort claims act refers to the law of the place where the act or omission occurred. In this case is California.
2: Well, Your Honor, uh, California law is what's been discussed in the briefs. I understand that it's possible that respondents might argue that some of the acts or omissions here took place in the District of Columbia, because that's the place where some of the decisions were made about the treatment authorization request. But California law is what's been asserted so far in the case. That's true.
3: Which would put a lid on the damages, since this is a death case of 250,000.
2: Not exactly, Your Honor. There's no limit whatsoever on the economic damages. Uh, In a case arising out of professional negligence, there is, under California law, a $250,000 cap on non-economic damages. Uh, As we've said in our briefs, we think that in this case, where respondents have argued uh, intentional wrongdoing by the United States, for which they can recover uh, under the FTCA, if they can prove that something more than negligence was at issue, then it's possible under California law, although California law is not entirely clear, that they could actually exceed that $250,000 cap. Uh, for non-economic damages.
1: May I ask you to comment on the fact that in the Carlson case, apparently the uh, assistant uh, surgeon general was in fact a defendant and the government failed to make this defense?
2: Your Honor, I'm not certain why the defense uh, wasn't raised in the case.
1: If you're right, he should have.
2: Well, not necessarily, because there may be factual issues that, uh, that we're not now aware of. In other words, it may be that the government concluded that despite what was alleged in the complaint, that when that particular individual took the axe complained of, he wasn't somehow wearing his PHS hat, uh, he was operating in some other capacity. Uh, so, but that's obviously just speculation. Uh, and it's, it's not clear why that defense wasn't raised. What is clear is that it was not raised, and not only that, but in the Court of Appeals uh, and in this Court, there is no reference made to the fact that he's No,
1: but it's kind of interesting that apparently the government was not aware of the breadth of the position they're not, you're now taking.
2: Well, I'm not sure that's necessarily the conclusion I would draw. As I say, there may be factual reasons why it wasn't raised. There may be strategic reasons why it wasn't raised. Uh, it's hard to speculate on that uh, so long after the, after the fact. Um, But what is clear from Carlson is that the way that Section 233A did arise in that case is that the Court used it as a specific example to contrast with the FTCA itself and said that Section 233 was a place where Congress had made known explicitly its intent that the FTCA be the exclusive remedy and that other remedies be precluded. That's the way that 233A was argued in the briefs in that case and that's how the Court used it. Uh, and that's obviously extremely supportive of the petitioner's uh, plea for immunity here. Uh, this Court has already essentially recognized in Carlson and reasoning in support of its holding that that's the role that 233A plays. And the Court must have been talking about barring Bivens claims because that's what Carlson was about. Uh, So that's the significance of 233A um, in that case. Um, The respondents also, and a subject we haven't touched on yet, I think, uh, look at the title of Section 233A and some of its other subsections. uh, And there, I think it's clear that the title can't vary the clear statutory text uh, in any way, uh, even if the title were relevant here, uh, it talks about negligence and malpractice, and we've cited, uh, in our reply brief at pages 18 to 19, the authority showing that when this statute was enacted in 1970, malpractice was thought to sweep very broadly, uh, to cover any bad acts, any malpraxis, uh, and so it doesn't operate, the title here can't operate as a limitation, uh, on the scope of this provision. Um, with respect uh, to um, the history, the one other thing that I wanted to point out uh, that I didn't get to in my answer before is another odd result that you would have if you looked at when Bivens was decided and made that your deciding factor is that the FTCA's judgment bar, at 28 U.S.C. Section 2676, uh, which was enacted in 1948, which says that when you take a claim against the United States under the FTCA all the way to judgment, you're barred from raising any other civil action or proceeding by reason of the same subject matter, so very similar language to what we have here. That wouldn't bar Bivens' claims, even though every Court of Appeals to have uh, looked at the issue uh, has said that it does cover Bivens' claims. That
5: would bar a later Bivens' claim. I I assume you could bring a Bivens' action first uh, and the the bar – uh, provision would not apply. A, a, a sub- yes, the that's Bivins. right.
2: But the, all I'm trying to say is that it's the any other civil action or proceeding yep. language in the judgment bar. If you looked at whether Bivens had been decided yet, it wouldn't cover Bivens, because the statute was enacted prior to the time that Bivens was decided. Uh, it was enacted in 1948. So it's not — it doesn't make sense. To make your statutory interpretation, your interpretation of those words hinge on the the facts that Bivens had or hadn't been decided yet. Um, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve my remaining time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr Shaw?
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. By its plain terms, Section 233A precludes any civil action against officers and employees of the Public Health Service arising out of performance of their medical duties. Instead, it makes an action against the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act the exclusive remedy for injury arising out of PHS-provided care. Unlike the Westfall Act, Section 233 contains no carve-out for constitutional claims, nor is there any textual basis on which to imply one. Accordingly, this Court should reverse the Ninth Circuit's decision allowing respondents Bivens' claims against the individual petitioners on top of their FTCA claims against the United States. Now, even assuming Congress did not specifically have Bivens' claims in mind at the time that they enacted this statute, that's no reason to limit the plain terms of Section 233A. First, Justice Kennedy, going to your question about whether there is authority for that proposition, that when Congress doesn't specifically anticipate a certain set of facts, yet the the plain terms control, that 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 is the correct result. This Court has stated both in the RICO context as well as in other contexts that the fact that Congress doesn't specifically contemplate application of the statute to particular circumstances simply demonstrates the breadth of the statute and not any ambiguity. Those <coughs> cases are set forth on page 15 of our briefs, Sedima, Yeski, and others. And the second point I would make is the best indication of Congress's broad intent is simply the plain terms of the statute. Congress could have enacted a statute that only provided immunity for, say, negligent performance of medical duties. It included no such limitation in 233A. It could have made the FTCA remedy exclusive of, say, only common law causes of action or state law causes of action or even existing causes of action. It did not do that. It said it is the exclusive remedy for any other civil action by reason of the same subject matter. Is that
3: that the same in in all the statutes that Carlson cites on page 20 when they say that Congress follows the practice of explicitly stating what it means to make the FTC an exclusive remedy. There's there's, uh, the the Gonzales Act, and there's 233A, and then there is the swine flu. Are they all, are all those provisions, provisions like 233 a let's say uh, any civil action
6: uh, yes your Honor in terms of that latter phrasing uh, exclusive of any other civil action or proceeding uh, for example the Gonzales act which is reproduced in the gray brief on page 1a of our of the government's appendix uh, it uses very similar language it says the FTC a remedy shall be exclusive of any other civil action or proceeding by reason of the same subject matter. That's identical language to that used in 233A. Now, there is a way in which 233A is even broader than any of those other statutes in its uh, description of what type of performance of medical duties uh, uh, is covered. There, there is no modifier of negligence or wrongful act or omission. It simply says, any performance of medical duties is covered in the Gonzales Act, which we would submit has has quite broad language and should have the same effect. They at least have a qualifier of negligent or wrongful act or omission. Not that that should create a change in result, but it's just supposed to show the incredibly broad language that Congress used to show, uh, that, that, that Congress used in 233A. Uh, and, and I think on the Gonzales Act point, uh, and Justice Sotomayor, I think this goes to your question about whether there are other statutes, uh, even though Uh, that Congress may not have contemplated Bivens at the time. The Gonzales Act was passed in 1976, five years after Bivens had decided, and yet Congress used the identical language or nearly identical language as present in 233A in enacting the Gonzales Act. Presumably, Congress was aware of the potential for Bivens' liability at the time, yet they chose to use the same categorical text. And in the legislative history of the Gonzales Act, they say they used that text for the specific purpose of ensuring total financial immunity, immunity from total financial liability for DOD uh, and Armed Forces medical personnel.
4: Can you tell me how many uh, PHS personnel work in settings outside custodial settings?
6: Outside which? Custodial settings. Uh, well, Your Honor, there's 6,000, approximately 6,000 commissioned officers. Of those, slightly more than 1,000 of the commissioned uh, PHS officers work in either the Bureau of, of prisons or in uh, ICE detention facilities. So the remaining 5,000 of the commission officers may not work in what you would call a strictly custodial uh, uh, context. A bulk, the majority of them, work for the Indian Health Service, uh, and that's true for both employees. I'm sorry for the Indian for the Indian Health Service. Uh, and so, is
4: there a reason Congress would want to Im- immunize PHS personnel against VIVIN claims uh, in a custodial setting, but not immunize Bureau of Prison personnel?
6: Well, Your Honor, I, I, I think they would want to immunize Bureau of Prison personnel. And in fact, that's where a majority of these types of claims come up. That, of course, is another custodial setting. Uh, and, and, and I think Congress would have But been not aware every uh, Doctor,
4: if they come under the FTCA, their constitutional claims are not immunized against them,
6: oh, I unless see, they're
4: PHS personnel.
6: Right, right. Uh, you're right. If they were if they were a BOP employee as opposed right. to PHS personnel, then you're right. They would fall under the Westfall Act, and there would be the carve out for constitutional claims. Now, what we do know is that Congress enacted the special protection for public health service personnel and singled them out. At the Surgeon General's request in 1970. And I think it's important to remember in 1970, this is pre-Westfall Act, it was not at all clear that Federal medical personnel were immune even from common law negligence, uh, for, for example. And so even from that point, putting Bivens' liability aside, Congress chose to accord special protection to PHS personnel above and beyond that, Entitled to those who they were working with side by side, say in the Bureau of Prisons or in the. Are they paid
7: less than other, than other federal employees who perform similar functions? And, and what do, what do, uh, physicians who are not, uh, were, are not employees of the Public Health Service do about, um, liability for, for Bivens actions? Are they responsible for getting their own malpractice you know, insurance?
6: Uh, well, well, Your Honor, in terms of the, In terms of the ordinary claims, the common law claims, of course, that would be covered by the Westfall Act. In terms of Bivens, uh, in terms of insurance against Bivens claims in particular, uh, my understanding—and this is anecdotal—is that most most of the medical personnel in the Bureau of Prisons do not have any other protection beyond that that's provided by the Westfall Act. That is, they don't have separate policies. Uh, There is, uh, at least according to the citation in respondent's brief about a website that shows that you can get Bivens insurance. It's not clear to me whether that's available to federal federal medical personnel, at least in the amounts of insurance that might be necessary to adequately protect them. Of course,
0: we're, we're, you know, we're talking here as though Congress is a, a perpetual, unchanging institution. Why would it have done this for uh, uh, public health service employees and not have done this for your — it wasn't the same Congress that passed those two acts. The one may have been a stingier Congress than the other. Or there, there may have been more lobbying uh, by one of the other groups in one case. I, I don't see any reason why we have to uh, uh, philosophically reconcile the, uh, uh, the, the, the granting of, of, of greater immunity to uh, public health service employees.
6: JUSTICE GLEA, I completely agree. I think it's correct. That the important fact is the fact that Congress accorded them special protection. Again, this was, uh, this was at the request, the specific request of the Surgeon General, and they did this to help revitalize the Public Health Service. Now, I, I don't think that it's the-, the Public Health Service, it's anomalous that they get this protection. I think they're in many ways similarly situated to uh, uh, medical personnel who serve for DOD and the armed forces. Uh, Like DOD medical personnel, PHS officers can be assigned to very difficult Situations and settings, sometimes in armed conflict, other custodial settings, and they can be ordered to perform certain medical conditions. In the Gonzalez Act legislative history, Congress says that that was a reason, an additional reason, as to why they wanted to accord immunity. Uh, And I think PHS personnel are similarly situated if this court were looking for a reason. The fact is they were accorded the same immunity, and that's the dispositive issue.
0: Just as a matter of curiosity, do do all of these immunity (coughs) provisions come out of the same committee? Or can, can one assume that the Public Health Service may co- have come out of one Committee of Congress, the Bureau of Prisons may have come out of another Committee of Congress, the DOD may have come out of a third Committee of Congress? Right.
6: Uh- I don't know if they all came out of the same committee, but these certainly span a wide spectrum of years, all the way from the 1960s to to the late 1970s in terms of when these various immunity provisions were enacted. Some of them happened at the same time. Like, I believe the the, uh, provision for NASA personnel was added at the same time the Gonzalez Act was passed.
7: If Section 2679B2... Instead of saying paragraph one does not extend or apply, had said the remedy against the United States provided by sections 1346b, etc., and repeated that language from B1, and then said is not the exclusive remedy in any civil action against an employee of the government, and continued with subsection two. Then the result here would be different, wouldn't it?
6: Um, Your Honor, it may be a closer case, but I don't think that the result would be different, and here's why. If you look at the text of 233A, and this is on the very last page of of the government's brief, it does refer to the FTCA uh, in terms of the remedy uh, that a uh, a plaintiff should seek. But it's not — it does not look to the FTCA to make that remedy exclusive. Instead, it provides independent language, independent of the FTCA, to make the remedy exclusive. It says, the remedy against the United States, Under the FTCA, that's when it references for damage for personal injury, including death, resulting from medical performance, and then it has its own language, shall be exclusive of any other civil action or proceeding by reason of the same subject matter. It does not reference the FTCA in that latter clause, and it's that latter clause that makes the remedy exclusive. So regardless of the language of the Westfall Act, uh, I think — I don't think it would make a difference to the result if Congress had used the wording that you suggest, <laughs> Justice Alito. Justice uh, the, one, the one final point I'd like to make is I think it bears emphasizing that this is not a case where there's no other relief than a Bivens remedy available. The FTCA remedy is not only available generally, but the United States has already admitted liability on respondent's medical negligence claim in this case. The only difference from respondent's amount, uh, from respondent's perspective, now is the amount of damages uh, that are recoverable. Would the, we would would the
3: plaintiff contest the uh, certification that this was within the scope and say it was so egregious it was outside the scope and therefore uh, it doesn't? come within um, 233A or anything else. And so we have a straight claim against the uh, defendants.
6: Uh, to my knowledge, plaintiffs have not made that argument uh, uh, in this case, uh, that, that they were not acting. But then
3: they would lose their argument against the government. I mean, they would lose their claim against the government if they were taking that position.
6: They would lose their FTCA claim against the government then, Your Honor. There are no further questions? Thank
0: you, you, Mr. Shaw. Mr. Doyle?
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 233 does not bar Bivens' claims here uh, for two principal reasons. First, 233 does not abrogate a constitutional cause of action because it cannot satisfy Carlson's explicit declaration test, uh, which is a type of clear statement rule.
3: Now, that's uh, quite a a surprising statement for you to make when the very first um, statute that Carlson mentions is 233A.
8: Your Honor, uh, I believe you're referring to the dicta in Carlson on page 20. uh, And... It's interesting to note how that issue was raised. In the briefs, it wasn't raised arguing that 233A bars Bivens' claims. The Government didn't make that argument. And, uh, in fact, it was raised in the respondent's um, uh, you know, cert petition or brief in opposition uh, for the proposition that that, a- that the language of that statute actually um, allowed a Bivens claim because it didn't preclude it. And in, in response, the Government actually argued that because Bivens hadn't been uh, decided in, in, in 1970 that it could not have possibly um, preserved Bivens' claim, so it was actually the opposite issue that was uh, that was. One certainly doesn't
3: get that out of the way it's put on page 20, because one of the reasons why Carlson uh, enables allows the Bivens Act is that it doesn't contain uh, language and and the. It, it It seems to me that this that this paragraph is contrasting statutes with um, Carlson because in Carlson there is no um, there, there is no other statute J-
8: Justice Ginsburg, if I may reply I, I believe that that um, 's not the proper way to read that dictum for two reasons um, first. Uh, as I think Justice Stevens mentioned, a, a, the Assistant Surgeon General of the United States <coughs> was actually a defendant in the case. And so, although this 233 immunity wasn't wasn't decided in Carlson, certainly the court was aware that, that, a, that a, a public health service defendant was in the case, and they wouldn't have permitted an action to move forward against that defendant had they believed that 233 barred Bivens. And second, um, it, it, it specifically characterizes the explicit declaration as applying to malpractice, not Bivens' claims. And, uh, for example, another statute in the the category there was the Federal Drivers Act. And certainly it's it's hard to imagine how a Federal driver could be liable under under Bivens. And so I think a a better reading of that dicta is is that the Court is just saying, here's an example. These statutes show that when when Congress makes an explicit declaration, but the issue is explicit as to what. And it's clear, I think, from reading that dicta, based on the the existence of the, the Assistant Surgeon General in the case and the fact that the dicta was qualified. That it didn't apply to Bivens. But uh, moving back to the Carlson test, um, 233 can't satisfy the test because Carlson never even or Congress never considered whether the FTCA was a substitute for Bivens uh, in 1970. And this point is underscored by the fact that uh, the statute was enacted before Bivens and that the cause of action uh, at issue here wasn't uh, recognized until 10 years later in Carlson. And second, When Congress did finally consider for the first time whether the FTCA was an adequate substitute for Bivens uh, in 1988, it expressly preserved, rather than barred, Bivens' claims uh, in the Westfall Act. And the Westfall Act was a comprehensive statute that was intended to provide an overhaul of personal immunity at the request of this Court in Westfall versus Irwin, uh, and it applied to all Federal employees, including members of the Public Health Service, and that was the holding of this Court in Smith. And petitioners reading here would actually require this court to, ro- to write in an implied exception to the Westfall Act that doesn't exist. That would exempt out public health service personnel from this explicit carve out of, of bivens. Moreover, the, the petitioners reading here.
0: Why, you, you, you claim the, the, the Westfall Act implicitly repealed 233A? Is that, is, that, is that what you say?
8: No, Your Honor. There's no implicit repeal here. Um, although we, we can Well, that, say- that
0: provision says that it, it's exclusive and you're saying the the Westfall Act says it's not exclusive?
8: Um, Your Honor, there's no implicit repeal here uh, because um, uh, 233A still has independent work to do, but we do concede that under our reading there would be no — it wouldn't really do any more work for public health service employees because they have a broader protection under the the Westfall Act because it applies to any wrongful act or
0: omission. But it isn't just made superfluous. It is repealed, the provision of it that says — it shall be exclusive, is repealed. But the, the, the provision Implicitly, is — because it, it's not specifically referred to. Well, the, the, there,
8: would no, there would be no uh, repeal because there are a number of other provisions within Section 233 itself um, that it's relevant to. And so um, the Public Health section. But Service just Act, A. We're just
3: talking about A. Y-
8: yes, but these other provisions refer back to A. And, and, and if I
9: could — I, I don't understand your Westfall Act argument. I must be missing something. My understanding is, many years ago, Congress passes a statute and says, give absolute immunity from Bivens' actions, sue the government, don't sue the employee. It says that, basically, in, in the, a long time ago. Then, sometime after, Congress passes another statute, and in paragraph A of that statute, it says, an even larger group of people just sue the government. And then it says, as to this larger group of people, paragraph one of this statute doesn't apply to Bivens' actions. So what has that got to do with this earlier statute? doesn't refer to it. I, I don't, in other words, I understand your Carlson argument. I got that one. But I don't understand this argument if I have the statutes right. Well, Your
8: Honor, I think that — and I don't mean to repeat myself, but to answer that question um, — Well, is there an answer to the question? Because that I believe would be there important. Is. But I think that the fundamental issue you have to look at, Your Honor, is whether in 1970, Congress intended to abrogate a constitutional cause of action. And, and this Court's line of clear statement. That's your Carlson argument. I got that. I
9: understand that. The one I don't understand is what's the relation of the Westfall Act to this
8: argument? There's, 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 there's two relationships between the Westfall Act and, and the Public Health Service Act. First, the Westfall Act simply applies on its face to all government employees. And this Court has held that. And so — Yeah, right. They give the government employees
9: same kind of immunity, but a little more limited. And that's in paragraph one. And then paragraph two says, paragraph one doesn't apply to Bivens' actions. It doesn't say anything about the earlier statute. Applies to a different group of people, has all kinds of requirements, nothing involved with 233. Okay, so what is it to do with this case? Now, what I'm thinking now from your hesitation is it has nothing to do with the case. Uh, It's the Carlson thing that's the important thing. You you tell me why I'm wrong. Uh,
8: Justice Breyer, if I could answer, uh, this court in Smith held that the immunity conferred by Section 1 applies to all. Uh, federal employees, and you have to read one and two together. I mean, you can't divorce them uh, because one section one grants uh, immunity, but but subsection two affects it and and, and helps define it. by You're talking about the Westfall Act. Absolutely right. Yes, and that I just say, what does
9: the act have to do with this older act?
8: Well, it, it, it isn't. It, it, the older act refers to the the Federal Tort Claims Act as providing the exclusive remedy in this case, and and the FTCA is the only remedial scheme in the case. So, in other words, 233 doesn't set forth within it. Uh, different remedies that prospective plaintiffs can get against the public health service. It, deci- it decided to define it by referring to the FTCA. And uh, when you go to the Westfall,
9: Westfall Act is not, defi- is not the FTCA, is it? It is. Oh, it uh, is the FTCA. Yeah. In other words, you think, I thought the FTCA Act is an act that gives you uh, action against the government. The Westfall Act uh, uh, is just simply an amendment to the FTCA. Ah, So it says this act uh, is the exclusive remedy, the FTCA. It's an exclusive remedy for all employees. But this provision, which gives us an exception, does not give you the exception, does not make it exclusive for Givens actions. Okay. You you go ahead. You you explain it to me. I don't want to keep repeating my
8: skepticism. I want to listen. Well, the first, the first clause of Section 233A states that, that the remedy against the United States provided by 1346B is, is remedy available. And so you go to 1346B, and Congress defined in 1346B, um, uh, I, think I believe it's on page 5A of, the, of, the, of our appendix, and says that, that the remedy is subject to the entire provisions of the FTCA. So you have to look to the entire provisions of the FTCA to determine what the remedy is, because what
3: what says entire subject two thirty three a. Where does that say anything other than I mean it reads like it's it's a, a immunity from any civil action. That's those are the words I think that that you have to overcome. It says. Plaintiff has a substitute remedy against the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act, and the employee is immune from any civil action. And then you say, but any civil action doesn't include Bibbin's actions. And you must be saying that the Later Act shrinks the former Act.
8: The the Later Act amended the the, the, the former Act. That's, That's correct, Your Honor.
3: It AMENDED 233A, it,
8: it, without in mentioning in, it. In effect, um, because it's incorporated by reference through, through the Act. So, so 1346B, the first, says, first sentence says subject to the provisions of Chapter 171, which is the entire FTCA. And within that chapter, there's a provision entitled exclusiveness of remedy. And that that really addresses the precise issue before the Court, whether the FTCA is the exclusive remedy here for a Bivens action. And it specifically says in that section uh, that Bivens actions are excluded. And so if you want to find out what remedy is available to to a prospective plaintiff, you you have to look at how Congress defined the remedy. And it specifically defined it by limiting it uh, under its exclusiveness clause, uh, to, uh, to common law torts, not livence not claims. But I think one of the key principles here that we have to Acknowledge is that you defer to, the court defers to Congress uh, in policy considerations like this because presumably Congress is in a better position than the court to to weigh a, a policy decisions like providing immunity uh, uh, to, to certain government employees. But the, the, the deference there is only uh, appropriate where Congress has actually faced the issue and balanced the policy considerations, and, and it could not have done so in 1970 because Bivens hadn't been decided. It's still Versus Gamble hadn't been decided until '76, which which established the deliberate indifference standard, and and then Carlson wasn't decided until 1980. And when Congress, for the first time, actually looked at the issue,
0: you say any any other civil action that that uh, did not exist prior to the enactment of 233A would not be covered by its exclusion because Congress couldn't have known that this civil action existed, so that it only it only covered those causes of action that existed at the time the statute was passed?
8: Only, Only as to constitutional causes of action, Justice Scalia. Why?
0: Why? I mean, if, if your theory is uh, it doesn't preclude anything they didn't know about, if they didn't know about something, whether it's constitutional or not, what uh, what reason is there to say it's precluded? Well, I think
8: that the issue here is, is that when, it, when, when Congress is gonna a, was going to abrogate a constitutional right, a recognized constitutional remedy, it has to do so in a clear way. And, and, and for example, Webster versus Doe, or in fact the, the Blatchfield, Blatchford case, has very similar language: languages. All civil actions, and that's in the, in the context of whether Indians can bring an action against uh, the State under the Eleventh Amendment. In that case, the Court held that, you know, all civil actions did not include the right to bring an action against the Eleventh Amendment or a state under the 11th Amendment because you're, you're dealing with a constitutional issue. And in this case, I think that goes to Justice Kennedy's point. We're not saying that, you know, uh, any, any cause of action that perhaps was created after 1970 wouldn't be barred, but when you're talking about a constitutional cause of action, there is a difference. And you, you, Congress has to at least consider the issue, balance the policy considerations, and make an informed decision in order for this Court to abrogate a constitutional right. And
5: Carlson is your best authority for that, even though I don't think Carlson is directly on point. Carlson is still your best authority.
8: Well, Carlson sets forth the clear statement rule here, the explicit declaration test, and then
5: In a different context, but Carlson is still your best authority for that proposition?
8: I think Webster versus Doe is is another example of a a case where uh, this Court um, would not uh, abrogate a constitutional right um, based on fairly clear language that said the Director of the the CIA had discretion to to terminate anybody, uh, and in, in that case um, uh, he, he terminated a, a CIA employee because he was homosexual, and he brought a variety of different constitutional causes of action, and, you know, and then the Court held that to abrogate a constitutional cause of action, it has to be, there has to be a clear statement. And So we don't believe there's been that clear statement.
1: I, I think your clear statement argument would apply even if Carlson had been decided before the statute was enacted. Well, that's, that's true. true. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. And
8: so it's well, not. It, I, I,
1: uh, I would have thought it wouldn't apply as
9: strongly because they would have been saying any action at a time when they knew that in, that particular action
0: existed.
8: It wouldn't. It wouldn't apply as, as strongly. And, but so I, I don't. I don't think that the sequence of enactment is dispositive. I think is the point.
0: Oh, so you say it, your it, response it,
9: to Justice Stevens follows because you say they unless they say a Bivens action is excluded, it's not
8: or constitutional. But it, it has to be clear that Congress addressed the issue and considered. Uh, abrogating a constitutional claim. I mean, I think that's what the cases are are clear about. Um, So so, the
3: Gonzales Act is after Bivens. It is. But you say that the same thing, even though Bivens was before Congress, and even though the Gonzales Act doesn't have an exception for Bivens' claims, you read one into the Gonzales Act.
8: No, I, I would say that the Gonzales Act also wouldn't bar Bivens' claims because it's not just a sequence of enactment. But, I mean, if, if, it, was, if it was shown in some way that Congress considered the constitutional issue and the legislative history of the Gonzales Act shows that it, it did not at that time, um, uh, if there was some indication in, in the language of the statute um, or, or anywhere that, that a constitutional issue Legislative
0: history consider. will do, so, so we, we don't require this clear statement, right? So, am glad I didn't hear Legislative you. history will do the job. So you're abandoning the the, uh, the proposition that there has to be a clear statement by Congress. No, Your Honor, I, and if I if I meant to imply that I'm I, I I thought that's what you said. I thought you said if, if it was clear from the legislative history that Congress considered bivern 's actions and nonetheless enacted language similar to 233A, that wouldn't be enough.
8: It. it I think that in the statute, in the text of the statute itself, there has to be some evidence from Congress that it considered it. Okay. I think that you can look at other factors to try to, to figure out what um, what Congress was thinking, of course. However, in this case, I think the point is clear that if, whether you look at the legislative history, whether you look at the alternative
0: remedial. You're confusing me again. Is, is, is what's important what Congress was thinking or what Congress said? I thought your proposition was unless the statute says that it bans constitutional actions, it doesn't. Is that your proposition? That, that's correct. And yeah, then it doesn't matter what Congress was thinking, does it? Unless Congress says that, your your position is. Well,
8: obviously, if, if the statute unambiguously bars constitutional claims, I mentioned the Constitution. I don't think you looked at legislative history. That, that's correct.
0: But ah, but if it doesn't unambiguously bar it, you can then look to legislative history. And say, although it didn't bar it, the legislative history shows that it was intended to bar it.
8: I think that if, if, if a statute, any statute
0: is ambiguous, you're abandoning it, Carlson. Then I, I thought Carlson was your big case.
8: Well, I, I believe it is, Your Honor, and, and, and the oh, Carlson just abandon
0: its proposition that there has to be a, a statement in the statute.
8: Your
9: Honor, all I'm saying is you're not abandoning that it; you're taking it further. You're taking Carlson further than it. It doesn't have to be. No.
8: All I'm saying is, I believe is that is that in this case, if you look at this, the actual statute that's at issue, no matter what test you use, whether you whether you whether you like legislative history, whether you, whether you only look at plain text, um, or whether you want to look at what, what's the alternative remedy, is it equivalent to a constitutional claim? This statute doesn't pass muster. It is clear that Congress did never consider. Uh, whether or not to abrogate a constitutional cause of action in 1970. Um, The point is it doesn't matter whether they did or
9: didn't consider it. The question is the statute was cited by Justice Brennan as an example of a statute where Congress did explicitly say whatever it thought that uh, uh, this uh, particular (laughs) remedy was a remedy, exclusive, an exclusive remedy, and that satisfied the second requirement of Carlson. That was Justice Ginsburg's first question,
8: and and uh, there, that, that's I think the problem for you in this case, Your Honor. Again, I don't want to repeat my my answer to that question, but just to emphasize that that the Court in Carlson uh, did not specifically say that Bivens claims were barred by reference to two thirty three. It mentioned malpractice, and, and there was a distinct difference between malpractice and, and deliberate indifference in nineteen eighty because Estelle had been decided four years uh, earlier, uh, and so. One of the other anomalies here is that, um, looking at, at, at the practical effect, uh, going to your, your implied repeal question, Justice Scalia, um, the only work that the two thirty three A would would have left to do under the petitioner's reading is is to Bar Bivens claims, uh, and when Congress enacted the statute in nineteen seventy, Bivens didn't even exist, um, and so. The protection that the, the, the position that we are advocating protects doctors because the Westfall Act extends much broader immunity to common law torts to any wrongful act or omission, not just uh, actions uh, performing uh, medical functions. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, this is completely consistent with Congress's intent in 1970, when constitutional claims didn't even exist. And so, when when, when Congress looked at the issue, examined it, and decided whether, whether there's a difference between Bivens and the common law, whether the FTCA was adequate to substitute for Bivens. It made the decision to expressly preserve Bivens' actions in this case. And even if, Your Honors, you believe that 233 bars Bivens' claims here, you have to reconcile it with the Westfall Act, because the Westfall Act expressly preserves Bivens' claims. And it is a comprehensive statute, it is later passed statute, and it is specific to the issue before the Court, which is, Um, Can can a Bivens claim be brought against a public health service, Doctor? The Westfall
3: Act could be read to say, we're now covering all these people who did not have, who were not sheltered by immunity before. But this amendment saves out Bivens' claims. One could read that as self-contained and not touching other statutes that existed independently before.
8: Uh, Your Honor, I I, I don't think that's a reasonable reading, because at the time of the Westfall Act's passage in 1988, no Court had held that Bivens' claims were barred by Section 233 or any other pre-act immunity statute, like the Gonzalez Act or the VA Act. And the legislative history of the Westfall Act shows uh, that in 1988, Congress believed that the Westfall Act would simply extend the protections available um, uh, to, to government employees before Westfall v. Irwin and that, and that people would still be able to bring constitutional claims uh, against uh, uh, members of the Federal Government. Uh, and so it, Congress had no reason in 1988 to go back and amend the, the earlier past 233 because there was no indication through judicial construction of the legislative history that 233 ever barred Bivens' claims in the first place. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, a adopting the petitioner's position in this case would, um, would subvert con- congressional intent because it would say that, you know, when Congress finally uh, weighed all of the considerations in the case, um, decided whether Bivens and the FTCA were adequate, it decided to — it decided to preserve Bivens' claims rather than bar them. Uh, And and, and so accepting the petitioner's position would just subvert that intent um, based on an act that was passed prior to Bivens existing, prior to a constitutional cause of action being accepted uh, uh, for this type of action. And and it it would just
1: be completely inconsistent with what Congress has has done to protect Federal employees. May I just be sure I understand your argument? Is the Westfall Act, uh, uh, would it have covered every immunity that the Public Health Act previously provided? So is it correct that the, the prior statute is now totally unnecessary and does nothing except preserve the Bivens — uh, that preserve the uh, immunity for Bivens' actions? No, no, Your Honor. I don't think I got to finish that answer
8: before, but um, if you look at, at the appendix to our, our brief and from page 28 to, to 62, there's two pages in there, page 29 and page 55, that show that Section A still has meaning because — um, there's a, a host of non-Federal employees, people that, that, that are government contractors, that provide um, uh, services to free health clinics and the like, that can be deemed employees of the Public Health Service and then take advantage of their immunity. But otherwise they wouldn't be able to take advantage of the immunity under the FTCA because they aren't Federal employees. And so 233A still has work to do um, even under our construction. And so. Surely it would not protect Public Health Service employees anymore because they have greater protections than the Westfall Act. And again, the petitioner's reading here would, the only work it would have left to do um, would be to, to bar Bivens' claims. Bivens didn't even exist in 1970 when uh, uh, that the Act was passed. That doesn't, that doesn't make much common sense. And before I conclude, I just want to speak for a moment about you know, the importance of this case, uh, uh, under the, the Bivens jurisprudence, I mean, the purpose of Bivens, this Court has acknowledged um, recently in, in, in Meyer and Malesko, is to provide deterrence to, to Federal officers, uh, and uh, this is exactly the type of case that, that, that where deterrence is important, um, because uh, Government employees should not feel that they can, they can.
9: Can't they sue the Federal Government and collect money?
8: Not for the, not for a Bivens claim. And, you
9: know, I mean, can't your clients, anybody who has a case like yours, can't they sue the Federal Government and collect damages for their
8: claim? It, it depends. Sometimes Did your clients can't. sue
9: the Federal Government? Yes. Did they collect money?
8: No, they haven't no. collected money yet. And if they win, will they? On one claim, but one of, one of our claims, the most important claim here, is, 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 will be extinguished under California law, which highlights why, you know, Congress would not want to — why this Court in in Carlson, first of all, said that the FTCA is not an effective substitute for Bivens, and and Congress ratified that decision eight years later in the Westfall Act by by finding the same thing, that that Bivens claims in the FTCA are complementary and parallel causes of action, um, because for the very reason that, uh, under California law in this case, the survival claim for pre-death pain and suffering but for Mr. Castaneda, who endured — uh, an incredible ordeal for two years at the hands of a government medical provider, um, that, that that claim would be, would be barred. And so um, I, I would urge this Court to follow its, its precedent in Carlson and recognize that, that Congress eight years later in the Westfall Act actually ratified that holding that said that the FTCA is not an adequate substitute for a Bivens action, for the reasons I've set forth. Uh, thank you,
0: Governor. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Goldenberg, you have three minutes remaining
2: just two quick points uh, if i may one is that i think you can't read this court's bivens jurisprudence to set forth any kind of clear statement rule in this context In many cases, after Carlson was decided, this Court has looked for indications that Congress thought the judiciary should stay its hand, and it's found those indications in the mere existence of some kind of statutory scheme, even where Congress has said nothing express about whether that scheme should be exclusive or not. If it can be the case that simply by setting forth an elaborate scheme, uh, Congress can uh, indicate its intent that this particular implied Uh, cause of action shouldn't go forward, then it must be true also that where Congress expressly says that it shouldn't go forward, that that can be given uh, effect. Um, And I point out that there's not a cutting off of a constitutional right here. It's just that there's a specific uh, cause of action that isn't going to be allowed to go forward uh, because it's one that this Court would imply. Secondly, just to... uh, go back to my answer to justice kennedy's question before the case that i uh, meant to cite to you was van de camp versus goldstein 129 uh, supreme court 855 and that talked about absolute immunity reflecting a balance of evils. Uh, here, I think Congress has done that balancing. Congress has decided that uh, it would rather protect the PHS, make sure that causes of action and liability aren't hanging over the heads of PHS officers, uh, even if that means that some individuals don't get recovery against uh, certain specific PHS personnel on their claims when they can, of course, recover from the United States. If there are no further questions, we'd ask that the decision of the Ninth Circuit be reversed.
1: Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, the case is
0: submitted.